Welcome to the Actionable Futurist podcast, a show all about the near-term future with practical and actionable advice from a range of global experts to help you stay ahead of the curve. Every episode answers the question, what's the future of? With voices and opinions that need to be heard. Your host is international keynote speaker and actionable futurist, Andrew Grill. Today I'm back with human rights lawyer and author of Freedom to Think, Dr. Susie Allegre. Welcome back, Susie, and it's great to finally meet you in person here in Richmond, just outside of London. Susie's speaking at an event connected to her book tonight, so I brought along the podcast recorder to update our podcast from last year with all the latest generative AI development, such as ChatGBT. Welcome back, Susie. Thanks very much, and great to see you. So we recorded podcasts back in September 2022, well before ChatGPT was even released into the wild. A lot's happened since our last podcast in September. So what have you been up to? I have been running around a lot of book-related things, discovering how the publishing world works, uh, discovering how book events work um, has been a real eye-opener. So that's been a lot of what, uh, what I've been doing since then. How's the book been received? It's been great, actually. Last year, uh, December, it was a book of the year 2022 in the Financial Times and in the Daily Telegraph. So that was uh, a real pleasure uh, Christmas present. Now, as an aspiring author myself, I always wondered, do you get fan mail? Do people write to you and tell you how they've enjoyed the book? I do, actually. Yes. And that is one of the really great things about writing a book. It's really lovely to hear what people you don't know and who are completely from a different field uh, thought about what you wrote and how they responded to it. So I, I do really enjoy that aspect of it. Some of the comments maybe we'll make into another book. Have they challenged your thinking about how you've written the book and what the next one might be about? Yes, I think one of the things that I've noticed is how anxious people are. One of the things I wanted to do with the book was to raise awareness of the challenges and risks, but also to try to give a bit of optimism for the ways that we can push back, the ways that we don't have to accept that it's all a done deal. So maybe in the next book, I would focus more on that, what we can do to address these issues, how we, how we push back and how we make the future uh, a human future that we all want. So I mentioned the intro. We recorded this back in September 2022. This is before ChatGPT and Generative AI had really hit the headlines. So let's get into this subject, Generative AI and in particular ChatGPT. What's your view on ChatGPT? What's my view on ChatGPT? Well, ChatGPT thinks I don't exist. Um, and I, I have a kind of similar view on ChatGPT that maybe it really is the emperor's new clothes. And you've been playing with it. I, I've been playing with it as well. You had a couple of uh, run-ins with it where it, uh, you asked it who you were and it, it didn't seem to, to have an answer. Yeah, I mean, I had a bit of an existential crisis when ChatGPT uh, replied when I said, who is Susie Allegre? that really I'm, I'm nobody. Um, and then when I went on to ask who wrote Freedom to Think, my book, uh, and it managed to come up with quite a long list when I asked it repeatedly of around 20 different random men, one of them being Bertrand Russell, uh, but still not me. So I did start to question myself and I, you know, I had to do a bit of Googling to check whether any of these men actually had written a book called Freedom to Think. Interestingly, according to Amazon, there is another book called Freedom to Think, also written by a woman on a completely different topic, but she didn't figure uh, in the names given by ChatGPT. The only woman that it gave me out of the 20 or so names was a woman called Bobby Stevens. So I guess 
in terms of plausibility, she could be a man twice uh, and therefore might well have written something about thought. Well, I asked it who I was as well, and it said I'd written two books that I haven't written, and uh, I'm not sure how I even correct that. We'll go into that in a minute, but it is fascinating what it comes up with. What are the legal implications of this new form of AI? Very broad question, but what are the sort of headline things that you're, you're thinking about at the moment? I think there are huge legal implications. There are implications around intellectual property. You know, it's very clear that this kind of AI has been fed on the work of billions of creators worldwide who are not credited or paid for the use of their work. So that's one of the questions. Another issue that's being looked at by uh, the Italian Data Protection Authority is around privacy and the use of, of personal data and the ways that it's processing personal data. And then another thing which I think we need to consider as well is broader human rights implications, including our right to freedom of thought and freedom of opinion. And a couple of weeks ago, we saw in the news a tragic story of a young Belgian man who committed suicide after a six-week quite intense relationship with a chatbot, not ChatGPT, but with a chatbot called Eliza, uh, where he had developed a relationship and been talking a lot about his eco-anxiety. Uh, and his widow certainly believed that maybe he would still be with us today if he hadn't developed this engagement with the chatbot. So I think how we engage with chatbots in general and AI like ChatGPT is going to throw up a lot of consequences and potentially legal consequences that we haven't even begun to think about yet. So chatbots are not new, and I'm sure what happened to that Italian person isn't new either, people having infatuations with technology. But I think what's happened is that ChatGPT is a bit of a watershed moment because finally the average person can actually touch the technology. And so it's made my job easy to explain what AI is. It's made your job to explain maybe how it's being misused. I actually saw a really interesting piece from John Oliver, who is a British comic who actually has a show called Last Week Tonight in the US on HBO. And he did a montage on AI. And he basically showed a montage of newscasters saying, that opening sentence was written by ChatGPT. So now you're seeing it going mainstream. The other night, a friend of mine went to a music performance. They wanted the words to an Adele song on the screen. They used ChatGPT in front of 2,000 people to get the words, which they could have Googled. There was even an open letter recently penned by leading AI figures suggesting that development should be paused. You aware of the letter and would you have signed it? You know, I thought the letter was very interesting. I mean, I agree that there is a need for caution in the way that this kind of technology is spread around the world because of the potential consequences of it. And when I first heard about and looked at the letter, I did actually try to sign it. Luckily, the technology didn't work, so I wasn't able to put my name to it, or maybe I just wasn't famous enough and therefore uh, it didn't accept my signature. And then on reflection, I decided that actually I probably wouldn't sign that letter uh, for a couple of reasons. One, certainly it seems that some of the signatories may have signed the letter with cynical intent, as we've seen that some of those signatories are very interested in other people pausing the development of AI while developing their own similar capabilities uh, in AI. But the other reason is that it's not really about pausing the technology. It's about properly using the laws and restrictions that we already have in place, considering the legality of the technology. It's not about voluntarily stopping technological development. It is, in my view, much more about saying, hang on, what are the implications? What are the legal frameworks? 
is it lawful? Which is what effectively the Italian Data Protection Authority is doing. So they are doing a better job than the signatories of the letter in pausing certainly the application and use of chat GPT in Italy. So we talked about this before. An individual, if they see that information is there about them that's not correct, do they have any real recourse to change that? And why do you think people aren't bringing class actions against this whole open AI and all these other generative AI platforms? It's interesting. As you've said, although it feels like it's everywhere and that we're hearing about it day in, day out on, on the news and elsewhere, it is still relatively new. But what we are seeing is that people are starting to bring defamation suits. I think in Australia uh, is where I saw the first defamation suit. And I've certainly seen an, an academic in North America complaining that ChatGPT indicated that he'd been convicted for a sexual offense or, or something of that sort. And so just saying there's a strap line that says this may all be rubbish doesn't really answer concrete defamatory statements. I think it's going to be very interesting how the legal landscape pans out uh, on these issues when these cases start being brought. But, you know, when you say, why are people not bringing cases? Frankly, bringing a defamation case in most countries costs a fortune with huge legal and financial risks to you as an individual. So for individuals, bringing cases is not straightforward. You need to have very deep pockets before you start litigating. And in some countries as well, it's not easy to bring class actions where you have issues that might affect a large number of people. Now, class action is a potential way of getting enough funding behind the issue to challenge big corporations. And we've seen class action suits on various things in the US. And you know, one of the famous issues dealt with with class actions was thalidomide, for example. But what we see is in countries like the UK or in England and Wales, the law around the potential use of class actions seems to be shrinking rather than expanding. And so while we may well have the laws and the legal frameworks that we need to challenge these issues, we may not have the funds and the practical access to justice to make sure that those laws and regulations are being enforced. Now, when ChatGP got launched and it got a lot of media press, we saw their competitors, the Googles, the Metas, even the Microsofts, even though they're investing in ChatGPT, really scramble and say, well, you know, we've been doing things too. Look at what we've done. What would be the watchword? What would be your advice to them as to what they should do next, given what's at stake for a Google, for example? One of the things that's been really interesting in recent months, and particularly with the big tech layoffs, is big tech companies laying off their ethicists. There's a big argument about whether ethics is what you need or whether what you need is legal advice, particularly around human rights uh, and compliance with things like data protection. But ethicists certainly raise big questions. Laying off your tech ethicists while launching a massive new technology that you are allegedly very concerned about its impact on the future of humanity would seem to me to be quite reckless. So I would recommend maybe talking to some ethicists, maybe talking to a human rights lawyer or two, talking to digital rights activists, and thinking more about what your areas of risk are before launching your products on the general public and then waiting to see whether or not class actions are going to come in in one part of the world or another. Well, thankfully, the podcast is doing that. So we've got you on today. <laughs> Last week, we had Stephanie Antonian, who was a AI ethicist who's worked for Google X and DeepMind and others. And I'm trying to get their points of view. Now, you are a couple of 
voices in, in the wilderness in, in many ways, uh, but hopefully podcasts like this raise the issue. I read a recent article that you had. I love the quote here. If artificial intelligence doesn't know the answer, it simply makes up plausible responses, but it automates the prejudices of our societies, delivers them with the confidence of a crypto salesman. Uh, I haven't bought crypto, I'd just like to say. One of the things that I found really interesting in my conversations with ChatGPT was the confidence that it exudes in its tone. The way it writes is fact. It might have a line underneath that says this may be completely made up rubbish, but the way that it explains things has this kind of extreme self-confidence, if you like. But then when questioned, it will always just say, I apologize and make up something else. And that's how I got to about 20 different men who'd written my book, very politely and very confidently asserted by ChatGPT. So the problem that we have is what is the point of ChatGPT? I mean, particularly when it's being used in a search engine, what is the point of a search engine that is literally making stuff up? I don't know. I mean, clearly I'm missing the point. And, you know, I, I am a woman and a blonde woman at that. So maybe it's just passing me by. But I think there is a really big question of what exactly are we being sold here and what is it for? Actually, you ask a very good question and I'm also a blonde man. I asked the same question. And Stephanie last week, who was a brunette, also asked the same question. So I think there's some commonality there. So that brings me to an interesting point. If some of the stuff is made up, should we be labeling content that this is AI produced and this has been produced by a human, and then the human can decide whether they're gonna believe the source of the information? It's really important, in my view, to mark up AI-created content. Not necessarily as a, as a marker of truth, because obviously humans make stuff up too. But at least when you're looking at something that's been written by a human, there's, there's a degree of responsibility, if you like, for what's being said. Whereas when it is being created by AI, you need to understand that that then has a lot of different drivers going on behind it. And that's the same when you're talking about images. I think images, it's particularly important when you're talking about images to know whether this is a real photograph or whether it's a doctored image or whether it's an AI produced image. And I'm sure you saw uh, the Pope in his white puffer jacket, or white puffer coat, which I have to say, I was very disappointed that he doesn't have a white puffer coat. And I think he should invest in one because he looked great. But, you know, that was a sort of jokey approach to AI generated images. But then we also saw, you know, the Trump arrest images, which have a much darker implication, not only because they might be disinformation, but they can also add to the cult of someone, if you like. It's about making something more glossy, potentially, and really disguising what the truth might be. I think when you're looking at, you know, somebody writing an opinion piece, whether it's my opinion or whether it's an AI opinion, those are very different drivers, but they raise different questions to, is this a video of the former president of the United States being arrested or is it not? You know, th those have very different consequences. So I wonder then who is responsible for telling an audience that this has been generated by AI. We could talk about watermarking. Now, for those on the podcast, watermarking, when you watch a TV show and the logo of the station you're watching is at the top left or right, you know you're watching the BBC or CBS or NBC. And if you copy that, you know where the source has been. So whose role is it to watermark at the source? Is it ChatGPT that has either an audible or a visible or some sort of 
cryptographic watermark that when it's displayed, it says AI produced? Is, is it the source that should be doing this? This kind of question of automatically produced content, I think it's in California that they've introduced laws around marking up this content. As to where the responsibility lies, I think it will probably depend on where you are, but clearly platforms distributing content will have some responsibility. Creators will have some responsibility. I think it's a very complex area as to who would ultimately be responsible for that. And again, it's going to depend what jurisdiction you're in as to what laws apply to the need for marking up. So you're an author, and many of the LinkedIn and Instagram posts I'm seeing is that the promise of ChatGPT is that they can write a book for you automatically. How realistic is this? How will generative AI change the way authors approach book writing? And is this sustainable? In terms of it being realistic, it may be realistic. You could feed it however many prompts, and you could get your 60,000-word book out of it, if that's what you want to do. I think the question is, why are you writing a book? And as someone who's been writing pretty much since I was first able to hold a pen, you know, someone who not only has written nonfiction and policy briefings and news articles, but who's also been constantly writing short stories, poems, novels, I can't imagine why on earth you would want an AI to write your novel for you. You know, if you're a novelist, if you're a writer, you do it because you really want to write. You have something you really want to express. And it's that human expression and creativity, which is also what readers get. So yes, you might find an AI created book that is a fairly straightforward read, but will it be creative? Will it be new? And I think it was the singer Nick Cave who was very scathing about ChatGPT and saying, yes, it can write you a song, but that song is, you know, I, I, paraphrasing him here, but it's sort of, you know, it's, it hasn't been ripped out of your heart. There's no soul. Like. Song There's, without soul. Exactly. Yeah. And the same, you're going to get a novel. You might well get a formulaic novel, which you might want to read, but you're not going to get anything new. You're not getting anything truly creative, truly original because it's all going to be dredged up from what already exists and then reproduced in what's predictable. So you could say that human artists work in the same way. Human artists and writers, we're all being inspired by what's going on around us. You know, as well as being a writer, I've also been a voracious reader. Uh, and you know, they always say you can't write if you don't read. The same with visual artists. You know, we're all being inspired from what's around us. But what we do is we take all of that input and create something uniquely human, uniquely new. If not, then we're just plagiarizing or imitating, which in general is not where great art comes from. So yes, ChatGPT can write your novel. But again, it goes back to that question, why do you want ChatGPT to write your novel? Why don't you actually just pay for a book to read someone else's novel who had creative ideas, loved writing, and put them into book form uh, for you to enjoy. I think part of the problem is that people want to get rich quick, and so there's a lazy, easy way out. They think they can do that. I think we might see a few of those. I've seen people who have, who have actually published books that have been written by ChatGPT, some children's books. Apparently, Gen Z 
are now wanting to go back to old technology. They've got sick of social media. They're going back to flip phones and 20-year-old digital cameras. So maybe there's a swing back to, to being more authentic. Yeah, my daughter has been badgering me for a CD player or preferably a record player or a cassette player uh, in recent months. And I have to say, I found it really interesting when you were talking earlier about all of these programs where it's like that introduction was written by ChatGPT. Well, on BBC Women's Hour recently, they had a program on AI and women, which started in exactly that same way, and then interviewed Ada, the first hyper-realistic creative robot. And my 11-year-old's response to that was, POV when they said it would make the world a better place. POV is point of view, which is actually used out of context by many young people. Exactly, yes. It was a very, you know, it was beyond Gen Z, deeply unimpressed with the robot creative. So let's go back to the title of your book and then what we're seeing with generative AI. Do we now have less freedom to think thanks to generative AI? As we discussed earlier, generative AI creates what's predictable and plausible based on prompts. It tells you what's the most likely next word. What we're seeing and what researchers have found with, for example, predictive text is that human writing is becoming boring and predictable because of reliance on predictive text. So I would say that, yes, there is a kind of curtailment on our freedom to be creative, on that sort of huge expanse for having light bulb moments because you don't have light bulb moments if they're completely predictable, if what's coming next is always what's expected. I think it does potentially restrict our ability to think outside the box, because effectively we're now going to be thinking through the black box. So can you see any positive benefits from generative AI? I think generative AI is a really interesting tool. It may be useful for creating content that's not meant to be creative, if you like. So it could be useful for uh, instruction manuals, those sorts of things, as long as you can make sure that what it says is true. So you don't need an instruction manual that's made up. So I think there could be uses for it like that. But I think one of the things we need to be really careful about is designing AI that does the things that humans don't want to do, rather than designing AI to suck all the joy out of our lives. And that is one of the risks with generative AI. Having said that, you know, Socrates had a very big downer on the written word because he said that it destroyed our ability to think on our feet and debate properly. Of course, one of the reasons we know today who Socrates is is because his friends wrote about what he said and therefore it it stayed uh, for posterity. So clearly, every time we have a leap forward in technology, whether it is the written word, whether it is the printing press, whether it is the internet, there are some people who are reticent about it, but there are also big opportunities for new things. So I wouldn't dismiss generative AI completely. I think it's a new tool. It's a new tool for creatives to be exploring and seeing how to use it. But what it shouldn't do is replace human creativity. So if you're writing your book today, what extra chapters would you have to include given what's happened in the last few months? I would probably want to talk about the outsourcing of creativity, particularly, and what that means for us individually and collectively as humans. So I think that would be one of the big questions. 
and maybe to look as well in a bit more detail about what it means to be human, particularly when we're thinking about you know, questions of brain-computer interfaces and that sort of development in, in neurotechnology. So I'd probably look a bit more at both those areas. So I'm just wondering, back to the positive benefits of generative AI and doing the minute, if I can get generative AI to do all the minute of my life I don't want to do, does that not allow me more freedom to think because I'm not doing all the boring stuff like renewing my insurance and reading instruction manuals and setting the timer for this and that and the other? It would do if that's what it was being designed for. I mean, personally for me, but it's not really generative AI, but you know, I would be deeply grateful for AI that would clear out my inbox for me without me even having to think about it. That would be a huge uh, weight off my shoulders. But part of the reason my inbox is so full is because of automated systems spamming me with rubbish <laughs> based on my data. So it's a, it's a sort of problem that's been created by the automation that might then need to be resolved uh, by the automation. Maybe the robot should talk to each other and agree to just cease and desist. Yeah, leave me out of it. We always end the podcast with very actionable advice. So let's update the advice from a few months ago. What three actionable things should listeners be doing today when using generative AI tools? Firstly, think about why you're using it instead of using your own brain or your own time. So what is it that generative AI adds to your abilities yourself. Secondly, don't believe a word it says. Double check, possibly through Google or maybe go to a library. Thirdly, play with it, but don't trust it. Susie, it's great to meet you in person here in Richmond where the tide is high. Thank you for your continued support. How can people find you? My book is out now. It's available in all good bookshops around the world. Check out my website, which is www.susieallegre.com. All right, Susie, thank you so much for your time once again. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Actionable Futurist podcast. You can find all of our previous shows at actionablefuturist.com. And if you like what you've heard on the show, please consider subscribing via your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. You can find out more about Andrew and how he helps corporates navigate a disruptive digital world with keynote speeches and C-suite workshops delivered in person or virtually at actionablefuturist.com. Until next time, this has been the Actionable Futurist Podcast. Actionable Futurist.